Washington is always busy when a new president is made. It was coaches and teams then. Automobiles hadn't yet been given the official recognition. Prosperity was the issue then, too. McKinley served his country well and died a martyr, the third president to be assassinated. Hello, everyone. That was a news clip from around a hundred years ago, looking back to the assassination of President William McKinley. I covered McKinley's murder in the Energy of Empire series and tried to ascertain whether there was a deeper story behind the actions of the famous Lone Nut. This assassination hasn't attracted anything like the critical attention later ones would receive, and while suspicious, I came up blank. That was until I discovered the work of today's guest, Professor John Kerner. In his book, The Secret Plot to Kill McKinley, Professor Kerner peels back the layers to reveal a wider anarchist, and perhaps ultimately Republican Party plot to dispense with the United States 25th president. That's what he explains in this interview. I start out by asking him what drew him to investigate this event, which took place at such a pivotal time in American history. I grew up in Buffalo, and it's always been sort of on my mind, having been a Buffalonian, uh, this assassination is such an ingrained part of our story here in Buffalo. The McKinley Monument is in the center of Niagara Square, and growing up as a history nut, now I'm a professor of history at Erie Community College, it just, it's always been sort of the central um, story of our Buffalo history, the McKinley assassination. And the History Museum, where I visited as a kid with my grandparents and parents, is the remaining uh, building from the expedition we visited. So it always had been like on my mind, sort of what this story was, and I wanted to sort of find out more about it. And as I kept digging deeper, I found out there is so much more to the story that's never really been told that points to maybe even two different plots that could have been behind who was uh, attempting to kill our 25th president. Okay, maybe we can back up from there for a moment. As a lot of people perceive William McKinley's presidency as being pivotal, as it's where the United States makes its step into overseas empire or overseas colonies. Would you agree with that? And if so, could you lay out what you think is important specifically about this era of American history? Right. So President McKinley, when he he takes office, it's very controversial because he was running against William Jennings Bryan. And there was a lot of voter suppression. And the idea was if you voted for uh, McKinley, you could keep your job because he was um, kind of the puppet of Rockefeller, Morgan and Carnegie, who had funded his campaign and threatened workers if they voted for Brian, they'd lose their jobs. So he gets into office kind of in a very unusual way. But then he has so much uh, like wealth and power behind him that he's able to, like I think, use that and get a second term in 1900. And the, war, um, the Spanish-American War is, again, as you said, this pivotal moment where a country enters the world as an empire and wins the war in about three months and gets all this new land. And um, it's like the entering of the world stage. And he is the president at the time. And it makes him a very beloved president among many people, but he's still not liked among the, the working class because they view him as like um, almost like a president who doesn't understand their needs. He is a president who breaks up strikes and is pro-gold and pro-tariff, things the working class just does not really like. And um, he's still at that point in his presidency, he's he's definitely a popular president among some people, but not among everyone. And that's, I think... Uh, what would have led to his assassination. 
I've heard it said that people didn't really ever know what McKinley was thinking, unlike a Theodore Roosevelt, where everyone knew what he was thinking and he was for empire and for expansion. And um, McKinley seemed to go where the political winds were blowing more and, and wasn't really sure whether he was going to go and colonize the Philippines or not for a while. Would that be your assessment or do you disagree with that? No, I, I think that's a fair assessment. I, I think he kind of goes in this reluctantly and then the USS Maine explodes and there's such a drumbeat for war with the, with the, you know, with the, with the press and yellow journalism and there's, there's this need for revenge and he just feels, you know, let's just go along with it. And he has his empire in his hands. He doesn't know what to do with it, really. There's an ongoing war in the Philippines he has to deal with. And there's all these different things that's happening. And his personal life, too, is actually interesting to think about, too. Uh, the First Lady is not in very good health. Uh, Ida McKinley um, has, a, has a series of strokes. She has what probably was epilepsy. And he has a lot of things to deal with in the White House with her. She co he covers up her face with a napkin when she has these seizures. And so he has, it's a hard um, personal life for him to, to deal with as a president. So he has a lot of stress with the war and with his, uh, with his wife. Okay, maybe we can look at, like, zoom in now and look at the assassination mm -hmm. itself and then zoom back out again at the minute for, for the context. So it, this assassination is attributed to this one man, Leon Shorgosh, who's a kind of uh, an anarchist and a dropout and not really even liked that much by the wider anarchist community. And he acts as this archetypal lone nut in shooting the president. And, and I was surprised when I looked at this just as part of my wider series, I was surprised how little I found contesting that narrative, even amongst people who maybe are a little suspicious. There's no details um, presented more than that. So your work is one of the first I've come across. It's actually gone into the details of what might be going on by looking at what people were saying at the time about uh, Shogos having support on the day and as part of a wider network. So could you maybe just elaborate on that about the what people perceive happened to the assassination and then where you found evidence mm -hmm. of a deeper story? Yeah, there's a number of things I can point to. Uh, one thing is we can just dismantle this notion that he was some kind of, um, I don't know, uneducated, lone nut. He was a very intelligent man. Uh, he actually went to high school, graduated high school, which was not common at the time. His family actually paid extra money for him to go to high school. He's very literate. Uh, so he, he knew um, how to read and write very well. He still understood anarchist theory very well, attended their meetings. Uh, he was res respected in terms of uh, being a member of these groups. And when he was in jail in the prison warden, he said, the prison warden said he never met a more intelligent prisoner than Leon Shulgosh. He would play kind of games with the guards, play tricks with them. It, it was interesting to look at his life story. He was not this kind of person that you would think was, he wasn't deranged to a psychiatrist, uh, studied him to, to see if they could do this insane defense at the trial. And they said, he's, the man is not insane. He, he knew what he was doing. So that part of the story, we can kind of say he was not a person who just was a crazed assassin. So that's one thing we can say. Now, secondly, I think there is there's a number of things about the assassination itself that don't make a lot of sense. And I looked at these in the book and they come down to about three different things. And the first one, you know, the idea of follow the money, where that comes from. Mm hmm the phrase follow the money yeah it's from you know from from watergate so it, it applies to this too because shogo he comes to to, to buffalo in the, in the summer of 1901 and he, he gets work on a farm in west seneca 
And then at the end of the summer, he runs out of money. He tells the, the man running the farm he has no more money. He can't pay his rent. And he then disappears somewhere. I don't really know where. Perhaps he goes to Cleveland, it's a guess. And he comes back to Buffalo three days later, and he has stacks of $50 bills in his hand. He is paying for his new room and board with 50s, $100 bills. He's paying for the most expensive liquor. He buys the most expensive gun, Ivor Johnson revolver. So his family has never seen him. They testified to this later. They haven't seen him in, in, in over a year. So the question is, who would be able to give him that much money, especially in 1901? That's a lot of money and that quickly. So that's, I think, very suspicious that someone knew what they were doing. And I think that is evidence that it was being funded by some very powerful and wealthy people for the assassination because he was out of work. And I think that is one thing that we can point to, the money trail, the amount of money that he had at that time. And on the day itself, I was interested to find that you highlight at the time, people at the scene believed he had an accomplice there who was acting as a, a distraction almost. Can you comment on that? Yes, and this really goes into a second point about uh, the photographer too. And I actually found more about this too, about who this person was uh, just after the book had come out, which points to maybe even a larger conspiracy. And they really go together with the other point about the photographer. So at the crime scene, um, it's about four o'clock in the afternoon and McKinley is at the Temple of Music at the Pan American Exposition. This is the culmination of his visit to Buffalo. He's meeting the public inside of the Temple of Music. And he has agents Foster and Ireland stationed next to him, the Secret Service. And they're watching the crowd. And McKinley is greeting the public. And then as the president is, is, is being approached, uh, by the assassin who has his Ivor Johnson revolver wrapped up in a, in a rag so it can't be seen. The person in front of Leon Shogosh does several different things that really points to the fact that he would plan this with him. So first of all, this person in front of Shogosh is leaning backwards to conceal the gun. So Shogosh has the gun tucked into the back of this person. So they're walking back to front almost. He has the gun concealed in his back. So this person, as you can picture, he's leaning backwards. Shogosh is kind of leaning forwards mm-hmm. and the gun is being hidden in the person's back. So that's one a very unusual thing, very telling point. Because the, uh, the, the Secret Service agent was, was asked about this in the trial and they called this man the Italian. And the judge said, didn't you see the gun? And he said, I was looking, but the person in front of him was leaning backwards. I couldn't see it. And then when the, this person, the Italian, reaches President McKinley, he does several different things to make it possible for Leon Shulgosh to shoot McKinley. He, he first, he grabs McKinley and he turns him to the left. So that's one thing. He grabs the president's hand and turns him away to the left a little bit. 
And then he, he grabs McKinley's hand and will not let go. He shakes it vigorously and just will not let the president's hand go. And then agents Foster in Ireland start to freak out and they grab this guy after about maybe 15 seconds of shaking McKinley's hand, take him away from the scene. And then that leaves McKinley open for Shogosh to step forward and shoot two blasts into McKinley's chest after that. Okay. And, and then after McKin- this, Sorry, go they, they, yeah, go ahead. One more point too. Now, if this guy was not part of the plot, he would have probably stayed there and helped McKinley. You know, anyone would do that. And if you're not, if you're a decent person, but he's nowhere to be found. Because after the president gets shot, Foster and Ireland let this guy go. They go back to McKinley. And the Italian disappears, leaves the Temple of Music. They can't find him. They looked for him, but he gets out of there. So it's very strange what this guy did. Okay, another aspect to explore is McKinley doesn't die straight away. He lives for some days afterwards, and it looks like he's going to recover. But I've heard the... The surgery attempt is medical treatment described as a comedy of errors where they couldn't find the bullet within him. They needed to remove the lead bullet. And there was an x-ray machine there, but no one knew how to use it. And there happened to be an expert in removing bullets who was a resident of that hospital, but he was out of town. So can you maybe speak to your investigation of the medical treatment of William McKinley? Oh, yeah. If he was shot today, he would have recovered probably in about a week or two. I just the. The first bullet, in fact, bounced off of his chest. It was short of his gunpowder load. So there was only really one bullet that entered him that went through his pancreas and then settled into his liver. It would have been easy extraction. In a modern day, he would have healed probably in about a week or or so. Uh, But yeah, they took him to the exposition hospital, not, not a local hospital, but it would have better equipment. And they picked a gynecologist to do the surgery who had, had no idea what he was doing, Matthew Mann. And there was no lighting. He had to use a mirror to reflect light from the sun to do the surgery. And it, it was just a horrible operation. And then the medical exposition, medical director, ex, the director of the medical part of the exposition, they have different directors that do different things. Uh, and one of them was Roswell Park. He was medical director of the exposition. He was not there. He was a very gifted surgeon. He could have probably saved McKinley. He actually performed surgeries like that before. We, he saved gunshot wound victims. But he was not there. He was in Niagara Falls performing surgery. And I think that's very suspicious that this person who could have saved McKinley, he really should have been there. And I, I understand why he wasn't. I mean, he could have put off the surgery for another time that the president was visiting town. He really should have. That was his duties. He, he should have been on the fairgrounds uh, reading the president. And I found it very suspicious that he was not there, Dr. Roswell Park, but he, he wasn't. He could have saved McKinley. Okay. Um, is there anything more you want to say specifically about the assassination, the day of it, and, and the surrounding events? That, that's fine, but yeah, what I, what is going on? There's this, yeah, the, the one really crucial thing I want to add, it, it, it's such a key part of the story, is that we need to talk about uh, the, the Charles Dudley Arnold. So this is such a key part of the story too. So he was the, the photographer, official photographer for the exposition. And he followed McKinley everywhere. He had like an all access pass, you could call it. And he took pictures inside, outside buildings. 
he called McKinley when he was in Niagara Falls when he visited. He was with him at the luncheon uh, the day, the morning of the of the assassination. He he was like um, his personal photographer. He went with him everywhere. So he also takes the last picture we have of McKinley when he arrives at the Temple of Music with Secretary Cordelou and President uh, Milborn of the exposition inside a carriage. McKinley is very happy. He's waving to the, his photographer. He's right outside the Temple of Music. And th this is the key event of the entire exposition. They planned this for, for months, really, this, this specific event, meeting the public. But then for some reason, Arnold does not go inside and take pictures of McKinley shaking hands with the public. And it's very suspicious that he did not do that. This was his official duties to do this. But someone told him not to go in there and take photographs of what was happening next. So I think that this really proves that someone knew what was going to happen and didn't not want photographs of the Italian and the, and the shooting because they knew in seven minutes he was going to be shot. Uh, the other possibility is he did go in there and the photographs were destroyed. So this is such a key part that photographs should have been taken. That was his job. This is like the money shot here, checking hands with the public, being there, but he was not there. And I think that really tells us there was something more going on here. And in fact, I just want to share this other thing I just found out. Um, it's kind of explosive and it's hard for me to believe this, but hey, I'm just going to go with it. Um, I was signing copies of this book at a book signing. This was about two years after the book came out, two or three years. And then I got approached by this man and he said that he knew who the Italian was. And I was like, oh, he said, this is, this is amazing. How do you know this? Well, he said, well, this person was a member of my family. This had been talked about and known to my family. We did not talk about this because it was such an explosive thing to, to know. He said he was a member of the Republican Party. He was like kind of like a um, person that just did work for the Republican Party in Buffalo. So he was like my great grandfather. In fact, he was Italian. He, he was like this kind of like an upper politician in, in Buffalo at the time. So he knew that the person in front of McKinley was a member of, in front of Shilgosh, was a member of the Republican Party. So I'm wondering, does this place the plot, does it move it then to the plot to kill McKinley to install Roosevelt as president, who was a very important figure in New York state politics? Could that be the reason why they killed him? Okay. He was very popular in Buffalo. Yeah. Well, that that's a different spin even from what I took majority of the from your book because yeah. I think you have to it almost peel really this back in, in layers, right? Because the first layer would well, the first layer is Leon Chogos acted alone, and if you peel right. behind that, there's this wide amount of anarchist violence going across the Europe and the United States with assassinations of heads of state and also bombings right. going on. And I don't know how to put like bookends on this. From is it? Would you say from, I don't know, the 1870s through to the, it doesn't seem to fall away in the 1920s, but it's something I think that people aren't really aware of how extensive that was, and that there was a substantial bombing on Wall Street in 1920 from anarchists. We don't, like the anarchists were the radical terrorists of their day. Could you maybe describe the, the scene with anarchists at that time? Right, so you had this movement that they're trying to use violence for political goals. And they're, they're just, they believe that the working class is, is being disrespected 
from working conditions in the factories and wages and that were horrible child labor. And there is so much legitimate criticism of the industrial revolution because it was not, it was not helping the working class in ways that people may have expected. They, they were Carnegie and Rockefeller and Morgan were beyond the wealth of any man could have ever imagined in history. And there was this backlash among anarchists and there was things like the Haymarket Square bombing in Chicago where police officers were killed. There was a May Day uh, strike and it went horribly wrong and it was blamed on anarchists. They did not throw the, the bomb and they got executed for this. So there were different things happening at the time that were making it seem like the anarchists were to blame. And sometimes they were, sometimes they were not to blame, but it was Charles Strick, for example, Carnegie's um, second in, in command. He gets shot in the neck. He survives the assassination attempt by an anarchist. So there's a lot of different things happening that show that the working class is, is rising up and not liking what's taking place. Okay, with the Strick shooting, this takes us into McKinley because it's the, the man that does that is the partner of perhaps the most famous anarchist of the day, Emma Goldman. And right. you implicate Goldman and the wider anarchist network in the McKinley assassination through, there's undoubtedly an, an association with Shawgosh, which Emma Goldman always denies that she had anything to do uh, with the assassination. But later on, there is also a confession, isn't there? So perhaps, perhaps you could talk about that element of it, please. Right. So another anarchist that she was associated with, that she was, that she she lived with for a while in, in Chicago, uh, and it was David Kaplan. And this man later confesses that he was part of this plot to kill McKinley. He was the getaway driver, as he called himself. He was waiting for Shogosh to leave the scene and help him escape, which never was really a possibility. But um, they may have told him that just to, you know to placate him. But Kaplan says that Shogosh was part of the plot with, with Goldman. They planned this out several months ahead of time. They had gone to Buffalo to look at the exposition grounds to see uh, how they could plan this out and who they could use. And, and that was what he had said was part of this. So it seems like that may have been part of the story. And I sort of wonder, like, at what point would this have become known that they were seeking to, to kill President McKinley and who would have got word of this because it just seems to me very, very suspicious, the part about the photographer, because someone very important must have told him that he can't go in there for him to under, to, to listen to that. Someone very higher up. He should have been able to take photographs of the assassination and only someone of, a, of official status that knew the assassination was going to take place that, that there's so much unanswered questions about this that just still are haunting me i guess you could say do you, do you see any evidence of a general infiltration of anarchist movements at the time uh, i know that um Shawgoss was accused of bill there was, there was some publication in a magazine wasn't there saying hey this guy he's, he's asking too many questions and he sounds like someone you we should be uh, cautious of so it sounds like there was some um, infiltration going on by whoever the Secret Service or whoever this is in a time uh, prior to the existence of anything like the FBI. So do, do you think that was going on at the time? I think it, looking back at this, it's a little strange. I think this may have happened very quickly because at the time, Shogosh was known 
to be a um, person who was willing to kill President McKinley. It had been published in Anarchist magazine. They, they said, watch out for this guy. He's not one of us. And just be aware of him. They disown him. So if anyone sees this at the time and they say, hey, we can use this guy to take out the president and he, he will do it for us. Right. And that's the very end of August and it's published widely. So if you don't like President McKinley, you've got yourself a person that you could hire that'll do the job. And then at that point in time, he disappears, as I said, for about two or three days and he comes back to Buffalo loaded with money. And again, anarchists have that kind of money laying around. I don't, but who would have that kind of money that, that could fund him and kill him through President McKinley? So I think a lot of this stuff happens very fast. I think like there's other times in history, like the, the mafia has, was hired by the CIA to, to do assassinations. So sometimes you have these different groups the government will use as patsies that will take the blame for other things that happen in history. And I think, I'm just guessing here, but there's just so much that to happen here that just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, like the photographs missing, the strange behavior of the accomplice, him coming back to Buffalo with all that money. There's just so many things that, that I, I, I think need to be answered before we can say this just was one person that, that did this. Okay, I might ask you to speculate a bit now, but in the John F. Kennedy assassination, I know that there's a lot of claims that one consequence of that was a change in policy towards Vietnam. And I, I know that's contested. Mm -hmm. So like Noam Chomsky, for right. example, contests that and think, no, the, the state of the structure of the state just carries on and does what it does, no matter who's in charge. Whereas other researchers like Peter Dale Scott point out, no, there was a definite shift towards Vietnam. So with um, McKinley crossing over to Roosevelt, I wonder if you see any kind of shift. I mean, I know, for example, that um, Murray Rothbard writes about uh, McKinley being more allied with the uh, Rockefeller interests, whereas Theodore Roosevelt was more of a J.P. Morgan man. But the, the big event of the presidency was kind of in the rearview mirror at that point with the uh, war with Spain and the Philippines. And I'm, I can't really think of any huge thing that Roosevelt does that would... Um, that McKinley wouldn't have done if you see that he goes on to do. So what, what do you think the kind of, do you have any speculation on kind of motive if someone in the, you know, what we might call the deep state, or whatever, or the Republican party structure wanted Roosevelt there instead of McKinley? Well, I can just speculate about this. So there is, if you go into this a little bit, okay. Roosevelt was in many ways, very different than McKinley. He was a progressive. He was from New York state. He was a person who was, a trust buster. He was a person in New York City who cleaned up the, he was a police, police commissioner in New York City. He's cleaned up the scandals there. He pointed people that he could trust. He was, when he campaigned for governor, he was supported by Rosalind Park and other people that funded his campaign. And they put him in, in the vice presidency just to kind of get, get rid of him because he was causing so much trouble, the Republican Party, and so many changes that they said, just put him there and then he can just sort of be forgotten. It was like this witness protection program almost to get rid of people. And he was there and it kind of backfired on them because when he became president, uh, he did, he changed a lot of things. He, he started the, the, the trust busting uh, to break up the trusts, like Senator Oil and other companies. And he, he met with, uh, with, uh, with strike breakers in the White House. 
he had a whole new change in policy. And he was from New York State. He was beloved there by the people of, of the state of New York. So th- if this was if this was done, it's almost as if it's a way to install one of their leaders as president on their home turf. They have Buffalo, a very important city at the time, a very wealthy city, a very powerful city to help them become governor. So this could have been a way, a, a way for them to install their man as president. Very much like Dallas was a perfect place to kill President Kennedy because they had all the people there that they could, they could use and trust and do the assassination there. And the places where assassinations take place are, are very important in retrospect because it helps us understand the plot in many ways. Right. I'm just reflecting also that Roosevelt is kind of used in 1912 to, I mean, I don't know if you could call it a coup, but to ensure that uh, William Howard Taft doesn't get in and Woodrow Wilson does that. And Roosevelt comes back with this Paul Moose Party's very radical agenda right. for redefining the United States at that point and not dissimilar from what Woodrow Wilson goes on to do. Oh, yeah. That's a great point because then it, it splits the Republican ticket and it guarantees that, yeah, Wilson gets uh, elected president. That might even happen this year. That, that, that when, you know, next year, I guess it would be. Um, not next year. Yeah, close to it. 2024. Think about it, like if um, if Trump does not get the nomination, if say like DeSantis does, he could run as like a, a third party and it, it could be like a split in their ticket. If he doesn't get the nomination, that could happen too. Yeah, do you know, I was just saying that to a friend of mine that he might have a rerun of the Ball Moose Party in 2024 with Donald Trump at the helm. He's this big, bombastic personality that, that yeah, has the that could happen potential. Because that was the last time a, a third party uh, came in second in US elections, in 1912. Last time that that kind of really significant impact. Yeah, like a, a former Republican president that uh, tries to get back in and then it would split the Republican ticket. And yeah, and it, it could happen again where it could guarantee a Democratic win. So it could do the same thing like in 1912. Yeah, it just could happen again. Okay, so I'll say if there's anything else you want to say on the kind of narrative of this, then, then please do. And otherwise, I'll just finish off with a question that the second half of the book is um, based around, the, I suppose, the other aspect of your life, which is in addition to your historical work, you do um, like paranormal ghost walks and you've written about some of the unusual, unexpected events associated with sites of assassination and particularly the McKinley assassination. So I think maybe um, whenever you, there's anything else you want to say about the, the, the narrative and then it's good maybe to finish off on that just to uh, just to entice people as to what else is in the book and that you, you actually do this kind of thing. If anyone's in your geographical area, this is something you you do around the Buffalo area. Yes, I actually do paranormal walks and the, um, yeah, I do them in like Lockport and Hamburg and Buffalo. And a lot of the things in the second half of the book, they just talk about some like unusual things, paranormal things connected to the assassination. And one thing is just when McKinley visits and he, he does like a tour of the area, one thing that he does is he visits something called the Devil's Hole uh, the day before and the assassination, it's it's near Niagara Falls, and it's associated with a lot of unusual train accidents and and massacres, Native American massacres, and and he visits this place just before the assassination. It's almost like a very cursed area. Many people fall in the gorge and died there, even just recently. So that's one thing that it's kind of explore in the book, the timeline before he he shows up, and then even like the place where he ends up dying 
present Milbourne's house. Um, that site was notoriously sort of haunted and it got torn down in 1956. So there's a number of different places like around the area <clears throat> that are connected to the assassination. Just kind of explore and, and the, the, the idea of President McKinley just sort of has always haunted our our city and the, just the kind of the regret that had happened on our watch. It just has always been kind of this thing we've, we've talked and, and been sad about for just such a long time. And it sort of hung over our city, like a, you know, like a, like a curse almost for so many years. Well, that, yes, it's a good note to perhaps end it on. Is there anything else you'd like to say on, on this topic? Just one more thing. I was just thinking like, one unusual thing that, that takes place too is after Shogosh is arrested, he's taken to Buffalo Police Headquarters and he's interrogated for seven hours. And there's no record of what happened during that interview. And it's very similar to like what happened with um, Harvey Oswald, where he was interrogated and they destroyed the evidence of what he, what he said too. And then after he's interrogated, this confession shows up that we find out later he never even wrote he was forced to sign it's not even his own handwriting so it's very strange like what happened during that time was he tortured into saying that he was only doing this by himself so one more thing that we can mention too is what happened at police headquarters where they interrogated him and this strange confession shows up that he was forced to sign and there's no notes of what happened during that time when he was being interviewed by the Buffalo police. And it's similar to what happened with Oswald. So just, just there's so many things about this assassination that just, I don't understand and don't have the answer is, but they really do raise a lot of questions, I think. Yeah. Well, I think the book is amazing. As I say, it's one of the only resources I've come across that has raised these questions. I think everyone knows these questions exist, but no one knows how to begin asking them. So I'd, I certainly highly recommend the book for that reason. And I'll, um, I'll link to it, the details of it and your other work. So maybe just give its name and mention uh, the other books you've produced on uh, what is it, JFK, Malcolm X, and uh, on JFK's son as well, haven't you, the, the death of JFK's son? Yes. Uh, so this one is called The Secret Plot to Kill McKinley. It's um, available at buffalobooks.com. And then the other ones I've written is why the CIA killed JFK and Malcolm X, the secret drug trade in Laos. And then the other one about JFK Jr. was exploding the truth, the JFK Jr. assassination. And that's a great book too. There's a lot of evidence in there about why he was, um, that was not an accident. It was uh, anything but. Yeah, I haven't read it yet. I just heard your interview. It, it was on the um, Conspiracy Unlimited podcast and oh, it happened to, yeah, from four you. years ago. I'll link to that too, actually, but it just happened to pop up from four years ago, uh, just on my playlist. I don't know why, uh, because that was very fortuitous because I, I listened in and, and yeah, uh, found out about this work. Thanks, Richard. I appreciate that. Okay, thank, Professor Connor, thank you very much indeed. And uh, love to have you on again, 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 to talk about some of that, that other work. Oh, wonderful. It's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate this and thank you for the interview. Thank you.